Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. experiences have come back to be very helpful in my entrepreneurial endeavors today. I feel like just really there's a period in life where you could make a period in your life to just try everything and kind of see how different businesses work and just get a little hand in a lot of things. And that has really helped me. I want to think that people can change and like they can change themselves in some ways, but people don't change themselves maybe that much. They just find a better place for themselves to succeed. This business column I was writing, I mean, it sort of fit in, in the sense that there were a lot of things on the site, but it was very different in the sense that I was reaching an audience of people who were not looking for career and business information. They were on a beauty and a fashion website. And so I was reaching a really different audience of people who maybe hadn't heard of a lot of ideas that would be common on business websites or on Lifehacker or something like that. And that was really great. Like I was able to take some ideas that were mine originally and some ideas that are just common kind of in business and express them in a way that was really palatable to people who maybe don't read business sites. You know, feminism is not just succeeding for your own self. You know, feminism is tearing down barriers for other women. Hey, it's Faye from Faye's World. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. You know what? It's summer in Boston right now, a season we get to enjoy for maybe two months out of the year. If you have a podcast like me and living in a cold climate, get outside while it lasts. On the flip side, people like me also have more excuses to stay indoors to work on our podcasts, blogs, when the weather isn't being so kind, I guess. So draw me a line if you agree or disagree. Today on the show, we have a fearless woman named Jennifer DeZora who is the founder of GetBullish.com and the annual Bullish Conference. When I googled Bullish Girl just to make sure that doesn't sound offensive, I welcomed results that are completely unexpected. Jennifer's website, GetBullish.com, ranked number two. Good job, Jen. And number one is Wall Street Crowd's Bullish on Fearless Girl statue. Apparently, State Street built a statue of a young girl to promote gender equality right on Wall Street, staring down on the famous Wall Street bull. Bullish is feminism and justice-minded work talk from somebody who believes in examining our relationship to corporations. Here are some of Jennifer's beliefs. You can make money and influence the world without being a jerk. Starting business on zero dollars. Selling expensive things to rich people and doing real things in the world rather than trying to manifest your dreams. Helping other women. By the way, Bisila Bukoko also talked about this subject on an earlier interview. This conversation turned out to be not only informative, but also fun, as you can imagine. It's just so refreshing when you can speak your mind without fearing others' judgment. So Jennifer openly writes about class and gender issues in business, assertiveness, 
sexual ethics, multiple income streams, and the value of women talking openly about money, careers, privilege, and influence. If any of those topics sounds good to you, we bet you will enjoy this conversation. If so, please share with one other woman or man, perhaps a friend, a daughter, a girlfriend. We thank you for choosing to spend your precious hour with us. Without further ado, please welcome Jennifer DeZora to the Phase World Podcast. About a year ago, there were a number of women who reached out to me to share their experience as you know entrepreneurs and women who work. There's one particular uh, woman uh, with three children under the age of ten, and she's been running her real estate uh, business way before she had kids, and and the decision process even until today of managing both. You know, the question. Sometimes I post is like, can women have both? Is it okay for women to have both? And this is a area where obviously, in a way, you know, people are very open about transitions and changes, but still I find it surprising that sometimes through casual conversation with people that some still feel like there's enough money in the family. Why should the woman work? And it surprises me, you know? You know, I think that I had a hard time understanding that at all before I had children, but now that I have them, I feel like I understand the decision of every woman ever. Yeah. One of those women, if there were a job, if they could have the same job, but like 25 hours a week so they could live, you know, then they would take it. But it's like 40 hours a week or nothing in most professional yeah. jobs. And I mean, even from my own perspective, with all the resources that I have, I mean, I do have a husband who has a job. Um, even mm-hmm. with all the resources I have, like if we both had full-time, regular full-time jobs with bosses, it would be impossible. I mean, it's it's uh, there are all kinds of sociocultural forces leading to it being women who always end up always end up taking the hit. Um, you know, like it's not exactly a free choice. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons why I started freelancing uh, almost almost two years ago, because I don't have children yet, to be honest. And just by me spending 10 plus years in the professional working world and watching women going from, you know, marriage to pregnancy and the amount of help that they need at work even. And then I didn't realize that was the easy part being pregnant. It's more when the baby comes out, that's way more challenging. So let me backtrack to when you were first introduced to me. Of course, I immediately visited uh, your website, getbullish.com. And uh, I was intrigued immediately. So how do you go about introducing yourself to people you meet for the first time? <laughs> yeah, welcome to my lifelong problem. Uh, I think that it's a good marketing lesson and kind of business lesson for anybody that when people meet you, they don't want to know everything about you. When people meet you, they want to know the one thing that they can use to remember you and hopefully that will help them. And so it's totally reasonable if you do a lot of things. When you go to a particular networking event, you pick one thing that you're going to represent while you're at that event. And so I'm trying to uh, incorporate that in my life a little more. So uh, my story is that I was the first person in my family to go to college. And while I was in college, I taught myself HTML and started making websites. And so from there, you know, maybe six or 12 months after I learned to make websites myself, I started taking on clients and getting other students to work for me. And I had a little web development company uh, that by the time I graduated, I had, I think, eight students working part time in their dorm rooms. And I had uh, clients that were from the college, clients from the local area, you know, and I was really, uh, really running a little company there with with no overhead. It was a great business model. 
So I really started out being an entrepreneur very young. And one thing that was interesting to me about that was that uh, I'm at Dartmouth. There are a lot of people going into investment banking, going through corporate recruiting. And I honestly did not understand why more people weren't running companies. I said, oh, you know, aren't we supposed to be the brightest and the best or something? Wasn't that the idea behind this college admissions process that got us in here? How come more people aren't, you know, taking advantage of the first dot-com bubble? How come more people aren't doing this? And I just didn't understand the class implications of, you know, like your father was an investment banker and now you too will be an investment banker. I just had no context for where I was or what I was, you know, uh, what environment I'd gotten myself into. So I felt really um, alone in a way at the time when I was running my first company at Dartmouth. Uh, but it was a great experience. You know, like I felt like I had no mentors. I had no one to talk to. I had a subscription to Fast Company magazine and I'm just sitting in my dorm room in New Hampshire. You know, <laughs> um, you know, I was really cut off. Like there was no way I was ever going to get venture capital. Uh, but I still was able to figure out enough things on my own to build uh, a sustainable business. And so that was my first company. Um, after that company eventually failed, I moved to New York and did a bunch of weird things. So if you're reading about me and, you know, yes, I did once do stand-up comedy for the U.S. troops in the Middle East. Uh, <laughs> so I moved to New York and I got a job as a director of marketing for a pre-Facebook social network for Ivy League graduates. And so I worked there for a little while. And then when that company uh, started going under, they started laying everybody off. Uh, I'm just sitting there in New York. And obviously it's very expensive to live in New York. And I'm, I said, you know, what am I going to do with myself? And so I started just doing every weird thing. And because I had started my first company at the age of 19 or something, I really just had not had a normal youth. Like I had never been to a concert or, you know, just like worn cool clothes, like just a bunch of normal stuff that young people do. I had not done. And so I just tried everything. I took a stand-up comedy class and kept doing comedy. Um, I was uh, an art model for art schools. Like there are weird paintings of me that art students did. Uh, I just did all kinds of, I was in somebody's, you know, short film, like all kinds of random stuff. And uh, a lot of those experiences have come back to be very helpful in my entrepreneurial endeavors today. I feel like just really, um, there's a period in life where you could make a period in your life to just try everything and kind of see how different businesses work and just get a little hand in a lot of things. And that has really helped me. I, you mentioned briefly that you were the first person in your family to go to college and you didn't just go to any college. You went to Dartmouth, which is highly competitive. So how did your family respond to that, by the way? You know, in some ways, it was really a blessing in the sense that my parents had no real educational expectations for me. Like if I came home with a C, they would say, well, did you try? And I'd say, yeah, I'm just not good at this. And they were like, well, that's nice. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, my parents were just like they wanted their kids to grow up to be nice and pay their taxes, you know, like nice and responsible. Don't hurt anybody. Uh, there's no pressure put on me educationally. And I think that made me rebel. You know, I was just like, I don't want to be average. So I rebelled. I mean, I didn't really have the information on how to get into college. Like, I really honestly didn't know what a GPA was or that it was a thing or that anyone would ever care about it. So I didn't even figure that out until halfway through high school when my GPA was terrible because I'd been doing all kinds of weird stuff like writing articles in the newspaper. Um, so I had some problems with my college application just from a lack of knowledge. Um, but I also had some really cool, weird stuff I'd been doing. So it was one of those kind of risky applications. Um, it's like, should we let in this C student who could have been an A student, but didn't bother, but did this other weird stuff instead? You know, that was my situation. And I mean, that's so they did. They did. And honestly, that perfectly describes me as an adult. Like in some ways, people do not change. <laughs> so, yeah. Did so. you, do you still remember what you wrote in your essay to Dartmouth? I do, actually. 
And it worked really well for me. So I had written a more kind of, I didn't know the essay was really all that important either. So I had written a more by the book essay for other schools, but then Dartmouth had this weird question. And the question was, write your own question and answer it. And I love this question because what most people are going to do is they're going to use that as an excuse to submit an essay they already wrote for another school. But I, I was feeling creative that day. And so uh, I saw this question and I just, I had a, a flash of inspiration. And so the question that I wrote was, imagine that aliens with no knowledge of human culture are observing you from outer space for 24 hours, replicate their report. And so I wrote this essay that was like star date 7.975. That's Star Trek. That's a Star Trek thing. But anyway, it, galactic time 7.927B, you know, and then it was like human female subject. And there was this whole description that, you know, from aliens, like uh, it described me playing the violin. And it was like human female subject opens a case and pulls out a hollow wooden box shaped roughly like an eight. You know, so I was describing it like aliens would. And then I just described 24 hours in my own life, kind of going to school and studying and having an annoying little brother, and you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so it was very creative. And so that's why I got into Dartmouth. Um, I mean, I want to think that people can change and like they can change themselves in some ways, but there are, I don't know. I mean, people don't change themselves maybe that much. They just find a better place for themselves to succeed ideally. And so as soon as I got to Dartmouth, I did exactly the same thing. Like I, you know, was a C student who was running a company and doing a bunch of weird, cool stuff. So that has always been my deal. And I feel like now, you know, being an entrepreneur is perfect for someone like that. I mean, there are a lot mm -hmm. of people who are entrepreneurs who have ADD, for instance, which, um, but also people who need to do something new every couple of months, which if you're in a job could be a big problem or if you're in school could be a big problem, but it's great when you're, you know, when you're an entrepreneur. Yeah. It's so funny that um, I grew up in Beijing, so at a lot of sort of traditional schools and um, spend uh, a number of years living with my grandparents who were particularly traditional. So that combination for me was a struggle for all that time. And now just hearing you articulate why I felt the way I did, it kind of all makes sense. But I think one of my biggest escape uh, living with them as well as when I returned home was that, like you, I started a lot of small projects uh, not initiated by anybody else but me. And, you know, weird little projects, doing a school radio show, set up some uh, separate newspaper and, uh, you know, and just do something different, like a little English corner to teach kids how to, you know, speak English instead of just being a tester. And at the time... You know, I remember a lot of people, including my quote unquote best friends, were kind of making fun of me to say, I mean, literally, what the hell is wrong with you? And what are you doing? What's the point of this? And these days I look around, right, especially the teenage girls, everybody's trying to fit in desperately. And I realized I was going the opposite way, not to say it was easy. Um, you know, like you said, there were struggles and then some point, but it was so worth it. That was the only way. So I think that really transitions to get bullish. How many years has it been? How did you start this venture? Sure. So there was a time in New York where I was doing a bunch of weird things and SAT tutoring, teaching SAT classes really started working for me. And it's because it was something that I had always... I uh, always been good at, but also I felt strongly about it. It's something that really benefited me in my life. 
And so I was teaching the SAT and then the GMAT and a bunch of other tests. And the, the GMAT, of course, is a test for adults who have graduated from college to go to business school. So it's a very different audience. And so when I started getting into that, um, I actually spent a couple of years as a like 25, 26-year-old mastering the GMAT. So, um, so I spent some time really mastering the GMAT to get a job teaching the GMAT for the top GMAT company in New York. And that was really uh, turned a corner for me. And all of a sudden, I had this successful career in education. Also around that time, I was the head of English curriculum at a Korean American Study Academy in Queens. So I actually taught in a cram school, uh, which was a little culture clash, as you can imagine. So I had uh, developed this education career that was going stunningly well. And uh, while I was doing that, I wrote some notes for a book I wanted to write called How to Make Money Without Becoming a Republican. And I feel like, <laughs> thank you. Uh, so there are a lot of liberals and artistic people, you know, just progressives, feminists, who obviously want to get paid, want to be paid fairly for their work, you know, want to negotiate better, want to not be living with roommates when they're 30. Uh, a lot of people want those things. But if, if you have really conflicted ideas about capitalism, really conflicted ideas about money, if you kind of hate all rich people, uh, then you're going to have a hard time advocating for yourself. And at the time, I had this successful career in education, like in private education, and I had a lot of things to say about uh, being a business person, both as a freelancer, as well as working for a company without having them own your life. You know, like I was like, yeah, I have a job for a company, but I don't need them. You know, therefore it's more of a peer to peer relationship. And I think that's really respectful for everyone. Uh, so is that I had all these ideas that I wanted to share, but I was like a GMAT teacher, like who was going to listen to me. And so then I happened to meet the editor-in-chief of a women's blog um, at a networking event. Uh, you know, I remember this networking event, a friend of mine was putting it on and I said, oh, like I should go to a networking event every now and then. And I said, all right, I'll, I'll go for 30 minutes. I will meet two people and then I get to leave. And I really don't like these things so much. And sure enough, I went for, you know, uh, a brief period of time, I met a small handful of people, and one of them was the editor-in-chief of this women's blog, who it turned out was looking for someone to write business and career articles. So I started out writing a column that I called Bullish on a website called The Gloss. That's now, like, that, that website now is entirely about makeup and beauty. But at the time, um, in 2010, when I started writing, they had, um, you know, articles about feminism and culture and things like that. And so this business column I was writing... Um, I mean, it sort of fit in, in the sense that there were a lot of things on the site, but it was very different in the sense that I was reaching an audience of people who were not necessarily looking for career and business information. They were on a beauty and a fashion website. And so I was reaching a really different audience of people who maybe hadn't heard of a lot of ideas that would be common on business websites or on Lifehacker or something like that. And that was really great. Like I was able to take some, um, some ideas that were mine originally and some ideas that are just common kind of in business and express them in a way that was really palatable to uh, people who maybe don't read business sites. So the column that I wrote called Bullish started taking off and that was in 2010 and I started getting, you know, people writing in Q&A, people writing in, you know, writing in questions, asking for advice. And uh, eventually I made my own website and started, you know, publishing the articles there. And the first thing I did that really turned Bullish from an advice column into a business was I planned and uh, produced the 2013 Bullish Conference. So the Bullish Conference is a feminist career conference and the first one happened in Miami in 2013. And we're about to do our fifth one in uh, this November in Washington, D.C. And, mm -hmm. you know, the Bullish Conference, uh, you know, I said there are people who like reading about this, that like reading about uh, careers and business from a feminist perspective. And a lot of the ideas, you know, are that are in common in these articles, I think, are things that are worth discussing in person. For instance, you know, having a career without being beholden to your job is a big one. Um, you know, having like entrepreneurial plan or a backup plan in your back pocket when you go into a negotiation and just not taking shit in general, you know, like not taking bullshit from 
you know, people you're dating, not taking it from your job, not taking it from men who shout at you on the street. It's all the same thing to me. You know, if you decide to live a life of zero bullshit, uh, there are ways that you can, uh, you know, ways that you can do that, ways you can deflect bullshit, ways that you can turn other people's bullshit back around on them. And I feel like that encompasses so much of life. Wow. You know, this morning I read one of the articles on your homepage where you shared an example of why when a man offers a woman a drink to buy them a drink, but instead of the woman turns it around and get, I don't know, orange juice with sparkling water or something non-alcoholic, and then we'll get really angry. I thought it was so fascinating because this has happened to me multiple times. It's not because I do that kind of purposely, but simply because I don't really drink. So if that was ever offered, I probably would turn to that. And I never thought about it that way. And another dimension of um, your advice is because you're turning something around to be something very useful, very actionable, um, that women could at least experiment just to see how their reactions or how the situation would change. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. You know, that piece that I wrote, so there was a meme going around that was like, why don't men buy women books in bookstores instead of drinks in bars? And it was seemed sort of harmless. It was like, everybody loves books. Books are nice. And I was like, no, no, like, I'll tell you why. I mean, other than buying someone a book is really weird. Like, are you going to exchange numbers? Then they have to read the book. Like now you're, now you have a a 20 hour chore because someone bought you a book and awkward. So whole new levels of awkwardness. Uh, And I know some people love books and like, this could be really cute. Like that's the story you tell at your wedding. Like, oh, like I never read Middlemarch, but then I did. Um, That's great. But for the most part, there are very good reasons that people don't do this. But anyway, I mean, the thing about alcohol in bars is that, you know, I also have had this experience where, you know, sometimes when someone offers to buy you a drink, they really are just being nice. They're just being nice and there's nothing more to say. But in a lot of cases, you know, what, uh, and I've really only personally seen this with men buying drinks for women, but I suppose it could happen with, you know, same sex couples or women and men. But, you know, one of the anecdotes I told in the piece was a man who offered to buy me a drink after I did a stand up set. And he's like, yeah, I loved your I loved your comedy. Let me buy you a drink. And if that had been I mean, that's something that you could see with like two straight men, you know, like a man does a cool comedy set. And the other man's like, I liked your work. Let me buy you a drink. Buying someone a drink is a socially recognized way to say congratulations or good job or thanks. You know, so I didn't necessarily interpret it as a flirty man, woman kind of thing. I was just like, I did a good job on stage. Someone wants to buy me a drink. I deserve it because I did a good job. Um, I said to him, I said, actually, I haven't eaten anything all day. I would love some popcorn. Popcorn was being sold at the bar. Like it was right there where he was sitting. In, like he was sitting in front of a popcorn machine and popcorn was $2. So the man wanted to buy me a drink. I asked for popcorn, which cost less than a drink and was in the same location. And he got really mad. You know, like he just wanted me to be drunk. My point is that, uh, you know, not taking bullshit from people is global. You know, it's your personal life. It's your business life. And having the kind of skill to deal with that situation is good practice for things that you will deal with in your job. And unfortunately, there's a lot of crossover between sleazy dating behavior and sleazy business behavior. I mean, if you're a woman looking for investors for your company, oh my God, it's the same as the guy who doesn't want to buy you popcorn. Like it's the guy who has, you know, he wants to lead a first round for your startup, but only if you come back to his hotel room to have a quote unquote meeting. There is a lot of that. And so I feel like at this stage in my life, you know, I get a different version of sexism. And you can talk to, you know, women over 50 who get a totally different version of sexism where people just ignore or dismiss them. And um, there are a lot of articles written about that. You know, like sexism can take wildly different forms based on your age and how people perceive you in a variety of different ways and what you look like and how you present yourself and the stereotypes that other people unfairly have about you. I mean, it just fascinating <laughs> to hear you say these things. Um, I come from a family where my mom has always made more money, which was 
I think definitely put a lot of um, pressure and unnecessary stress on my dad, because when you think about it, you know, when one person contributes so much more, you know, my dad, I'm 34. So my parents were, you know, I'm not a young millennial by any stretch. So um, things were, I guess, really tough. And there are people pitying my dad to say, wow, it really must be very hard to be in this position. Now, fast forward, you know, 30 years later, my mom is a good friend with a um, woman who is an incredibly successful hedge fund manager in Boston. In fact, she may be one of the most successful in New England, right? And um, they live in a, you know, penthouse and $10 million and vacation homes everywhere. But I notice when, in a rare occasions, when I introduce her to some of my friends or everybody's question is, wow, what does he do? You know, what does the husband do without exception? And we're talking about 2015, 16, 17. And it really hit me that I had to correct them every single time. It's not about him. It's all her. And you just see like people just feel like, you know, the the wall behind them just kind of collapse and disappear and they have to kind of fall into a hole. And like, and that is a phenomenon that's going, you know, around the world. It's not just in the U.S. It's in China. It's in developing uh, countries, um, you know. So I think people need to adjust rather quickly to not make the assumption. But at the same time, I guess I, I was dying to ask you this question, being in your position and that people challenged you when you were 13 for writing one or two articles, given the way that you are so forward and and very transparent on your website. Are you getting hate mail these days? I mean, how? Yeah, not a huge amount. I mean, I think that because I write more about uh, careers in business, um, mm-hmm. you know, even though I feel like my message is more progressive than a lot of the like sort of lean in, like everything is just dependent on women working harder. Like just every women should just work harder. You know, like my, my message is more about systemic change. Like, yes, you can work harder while you're, you know, waiting for these systemic changes to happen. Um, and here are some clever ways to do that. But also like, I, I do believe in systemic change and I believe in, you know, feminism is not just succeeding for your own self. You know, feminism is tearing down barriers for other women. And, you know, so I feel like the message that I'm putting out there is, uh, progressive, but I think that because I am writing about careers in business, I don't necessarily get the same kind of hate mail that a lot of other female writers get. That said, I mean, the most interesting piece of hate mail I got, I thought this was amazing. And I don't know if the writer was a man or a woman or what, there's just, but it was like, it said, you are only successful, you know, because of your looks, but you're getting old. And like, when you're ugly, no one will pay attention to you. And I was like, wait, my entire audience is women. What are you talking about? Like, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, and so it was like a piece of hate mail about how I was getting old and less attractive. And I was like, yes, I am. So is everyone. Like, I'm not embarrassed by that. Like, I'm obviously less good looking than I was 10 years ago because almost everyone is. And that's just how things work. Um, and I'm happy to talk about that. Like, I think it's actually a really interesting topic that you get treated very differently based on your appearance. And, you know, from my own perspective, I mean, 10 years ago, if I tried to tell a man about my business, in almost every case, I would get a reaction like I was doing something sexually provocative. You know, like I could say, yeah, I'm starting a GMAT startup. And people would be like, ha, 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 you know, like sexy, sexy. And it was like a really unwelcome component of almost every single conversation. And now I feel like being 38 and being a married woman, you know, like I'm pleasant enough that, you know, like nobody's going to not put me in an educational video. <laughs> like, you know, I feel like I can just talk normally to men now. Um, And it's great. Like, we can just be human beings. I mean, definitely not all the time, but enough of the time that I notice it. And I'm just like, yeah, I think we just had an almost ungendered conversation. Mm. 
you know, I told several people in recent conversations how wonderful it is to be in my 30s compared to being my 20s. There are things I couldn't control. There's the knowledge and sort of wisdom that I felt, especially through running a podcast and just be vulnerable and trying to connect with people around the world, people, you know, never met, probably never will meet uh, in some cases and still have these authentic conversations, have this kind of transform our relationship for the rest of our lives is really interesting to me. You know, I don't think I had this this thing in me uh, necessarily, especially in my early to mid twenties. And, you know, I, I look at myself differently in front of the mirror these days, right? And um, there's actually, so there's a book that I refer to all the time. And it's a very well-known book. Um, probably many of your readers have, or listeners have read it, but it's called Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert. I love it. I, I read that book, I think uh, twice. It's so well-written, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love that it was, it's a book about happiness science, but it's a very dark and sarcastic, honestly. And like, there's an introduction to the book where he's like, well, this isn't a how-to book on how to be happy. If you bought that, you're kind of an idiot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like, this is about science and you're probably not going to like it. So these are the facts. Like, that's his introduction. So I really enjoyed that. It wasn't like a positive thinking, you know, like manifesting crystal healing manual. Um, but one of the things that he says and backs up with research is that we are really, really bad at anticipating what our future selves will want. So that's why you have a closet full of clothes that don't appeal to you. You know, like we all make decisions for our future selves that are bad. And so he's like, well, what can you do about that? And, you know, he he was a little bit fatalistic about it. You know, he said he gave an example. If you want to know if you will enjoy law school or being a lawyer, um, basically, you think that you're so unique and so special because everyone does. But you're actually more like other people than you think. So basically, just go talk to some lawyers. If they're happy, you'll probably be happy. You know, like other people, other people in your future position are more like you than you are now, like yourself in a future position. I hope I did that sense right. No, that makes perfect sense. No, it's interesting because uh, you can sort of see yourself almost ahead of time. And I've always, for example, when I was 18, all my friends were 28 or older. A lot of them concentrated around the area of exactly 10 years ahead of me. And that was a magical thing because instead of uh, setting myself up or just hang out exclusive with people my age, share my exact set of anxieties, and problems and issues and fear. I was talking to people exactly 10 years ahead of me who I respect, you know? Yeah, very, very interesting. And I heard that feedback again and again from some of the guests to, you know, position themselves with someone, you know, it doesn't have to be an age thing, but someone career-wise oftentimes results in someone who is a little bit older, um, who's ahead of you. And that's that's so interesting. I do feel like, I mean, like, I, I hate to I hate to say things that are so unachievable or, you know, difficult to achieve, but in an ideal world, you know, like if you're, if you are, you know, full of energy and unencumbered with responsibilities at the time that you are listening to this, I mean, yeah, you want to be a boss by the time you have kids. Like that would be, and I like, whether it's running your own company or being in a managerial position at your company, you don't want to be someone who has to deal with like a timesheet or asking permission to take a half day to work at home. Like if your kid gets sick in daycare, you want to just go get them. You know, that's a big thing, by the way. So if you're imagining your future life and you're like, oh, me and my spouse, you know, we will have these, you know, exciting jobs and we'll just make enough money to pay for daycare or a nanny or something like that's great. But if your kid's in daycare or it's public school or whatever, your kid's at school and they get sick, someone has to go get them. And that means, you know, you or your spouse are leaving your job to do that. And, you know, some people can do that. and It doesn't affect anything. And some people can do that. And like now their boss thinks that they're a, a total asshole for leaving. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting that what um, I've seen as kind of occurring worldwide is what we used to know or define as 
you know, masculine versus feminine. What, what if we turn it around? What if feeding a baby, what if going grocery shopping and play with the kids are considered super masculine and historically, <laughs> right? And now I think it's really about how we define it. And, you know, when a group of a cohort of people used to be in power, in this case, men, you know, who were given opportunities that were not available for, for women. Now that shift is going on with or without them. And it is driving a lot of fear internally um, that, you know, I think maybe there needs to be a course or some additional support for men to cope with that. Maybe that's a better way. I, I, you're absolutely right. And a lot of the jobs that are available, you know, becoming, they're still available in the new economy are service jobs and caring jobs that a lot of men uh, don't feel comfortable taking or don't want to take. So uh, they're actually, I read an article about the attempt to get more men to be nurses. And basically the, whoever does that, the nursing board of America, whatever it's called, um, put out an advertising campaign to try to get men to go to nursing school. And they, what they tried to do was focus on the emergency aspects of nursing, you know, so it's like constant adrenaline, you're a nurse. You know, and so they had like like a, a male emergency nurse and it was just like, yeah, when that call comes, we are ready. Like they tried to make it sound super masculine um, and they tried to, right, which not saying that's not true. It's just like women also are sometimes filled with adrenaline dealing with emergencies. Like that is part of nursing. You know, some kinds of nursing have that and some kinds don't. Um, so, but yeah, you're right. Like there are a lot of these traditional concepts of masculinity that are like working with your hands and like not having to have people skills and especially like not having to quote unquote serve someone. And a lot of men are, you know, I mean, I feel like the New York Times writes an article about this every week, which is why I feel so well versed in it. But the New York Times is like, yes, there are lots of jobs available as home health, home health aides. Um, but basically, um, you know, when women become unemployed, even from high level jobs, they tend to find some other kind of job. So like if women get laid off from a high level job, if they can't get another high level job, they will take a lower level job. And they usually get back into the job market at higher rates than men, where it's like they're like, I was a machinist and the, the plant is closed. So I will be unemployed for the rest of my life. Like they're, uh, you know, less willing to retrain or to take caring type jobs um, or to develop the people skills that you would need for a service or caring type job. So, I mean, I find that a very interesting topic. Like a lot of our ideals of masculinity are leading men to desire jobs that no longer exist. Um, so, I mean, ideals of masculinity are certainly, uh, you know, in keeping with very high level jobs. Like, sure, you could be a titan of industry, but not everyone can be a titan of industry. And we just don't have those factory jobs anymore. So gender roles, fuck them on every level. Gender roles hurt everyone. That's, that is my position. Like F it all, yeah. you know? And I feel like, you know, we were talking earlier about that kind of like dinner party situation. And I feel like every time you get one of these questions, it's like, wow, you have a job and children. How do you do it? Just make, if you are like a woman with a male partner, make half that question about him. Like just, and, you know, and vice versa. Like you got to train your partner. Again, if you're a woman with a male partner, you know, when your partner gets asked, you know, like, wow, like your wife's going back to work. How's that going to be? You know, he needs to be like, well, we're both going back to work and like, we're going, this is how we're doing it. You know, like we contribute part, both of us contribute part of our salary to daycare and I'm going to do the pickup and she's going to do the drop off or something like that. But like questions about career, questions about childcare, you got to just make it about both of you and get people used to that. So like, how do you do it? Well, here's how I do it. And here's how he does it. Mm, I love that. This is such great advice, and I think people need to hear it more often. Just like, oh, if you know that I love you, but it's nice to say every once in a while, you know, and uh, to acknowledge that. And I think a lot of people are dying to know that at the beginning you mentioned, you know, it's just by looking at Get Bullish, I know intimately well how much work there is to be done. So sort of how are you running the business from a revenue model standpoint? Thanks for asking. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing that made bullish a business was the conference that I ran in 2013 conferences by themselves are not a great way to make money, at least not at first. 
And so I basically lost, I lost a good amount of money on the first conference. Second conference in 2014, I lost a little less money. So I mean, is that, does that even count, it a, count as a business at that point, other than inviting people on a cool business vacation with me? <laughs> so the first couple of conferences were fantastic, but not profitable. Around that time, I started the online retail store that I didn't plan to be a major revenue stream. The online retail store sold originally like keychains and t-shirts, and it was kind of small. Um, today, the online retail store um, does, I mean, this year, probably $200,000 oh, in wow. revenue. That's incredible. Thank revenue you. Wise? In revenue. Yeah. So, um, and that's uh, off the top of my head, but I think probably about 200,000. And uh, so we have a warehouse here that has probably, you know, probably a hundred thousand dollars in inventory, you know, stored here. And uh, yeah. And so we're shipping out packages every single day from this little warehouse in industry city, Brooklyn. Um, that grew, it turns out, I really love running an e-commerce business. Um, out of the 1800 products that we sell, about 30 of them are things that I designed where I wrote a slogan. For instance, we have this mug that says we will dance on the graves of the patriarchy and drink the bitter tears of mediocre men. And you know, honestly, it's so much easier for me to write a slogan than a whole article. It's like you write a whole article, you put it out there, and like six months later, someone's like, "This really helped me." <laughs> you know, I love I the products; it's, they're very compelling. I I never thought about it that way, though. Um, so yeah, we curate things from other artists, and so we have eighteen hundred products. Again, about thirty of them are things that I made, and the rest we have curated or I've curated. Um, so I'm really heavily involved in the e-commerce business. I have people who come in and actually physically ship the packages, but in terms of actually what we sell, in terms of buying, I think I do. 100% of the buying for the store. Anyway, so back to the revenue model. So the online retail store um, became successful kind of during one holiday season. Um, so we just had this bang up like holiday season, I think in 2014. And I said, oh my God, you know, so I started buying more products and getting ready for the holidays. And 2015, 2016 were really big. So the retail, the online retail store is one big part of the business. Uh, the conference, uh, we're coming into our fifth year. And uh, I mean, I would say that it's kind of break even financially. Um, for us. And then the third thing that we do is the online membership site, which is called the Bullish Society, bullishsociety.com. And that is um, an online membership site where people pay $10 a month and they're receiving career support. We have an expert in residence every month who weighs in on a different career topic. And it's a tightly focused place for career support and career Q&A, getting advice on things where you're not going to be overwhelmed with so much like social media. Um, so really a tightly focused feminist career network. So, um, and that has been pretty successful for us as well, as well. We're at about 360 people in there. And oh. so, yeah, it's a good size audience. Like it's enough people that if you have a problem, someone will know the answer, but it's not, you know, tens of thousands of people where you kind of get lost in there. So those are the three things that we do on a revenue model. And then, uh, we're actually creating a food startup right now. It is a slow cooker meal kit plan. So like HelloFresh or Blue Apron, but you just dump it in the crock pot and go to work and you come back and you have food. So I was inspired to do this because there is actually a lot of crossover with people in our audience who are very frustrated by meal kit plans and all the prep and all the chopping and, you know, just want to focus on their careers, come home to food, have it all done for you. So it's called Busy Bowl Club, um, busybowlclub.com. And right now we're like, uh, people are uh, joining a list for invites. So we're going to be inviting people to join in the fall. Um, we have 20 customers right now and a waiting list of people waiting to be let in. So we literally have an office full of like food products and we have a membership at a commercial kitchen that is also in industry city here in Brooklyn. And we have like health inspectors who come and I mean, all the stuff you have to do to start a food business, like it's yeah, happening. Crazy. So, yeah. So I mean, bullish is those three things, the conference, the retail store and the membership site, but we also have spinoffs that we're working on. And uh, I just, I love to do, do new things and make it all work together. Wow. That's incredible. Thank you so much for your time and staying on. I love the Thanks. message. Thank you for having me. 
Hey, it's Faye. I am back for a few words at the end of the show. I hope you enjoy what you heard. You can visit us online at faceworld.com or social channels such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, also under Faceworld to keep things simple. I personally review and respond to all the messages. Love to hear from you. Thank you and lots of hugs. See you next week.